Please turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. You have a bulletin insert that I was able to get the entire chapter on that, as well as a few points for you to follow along and maybe jot down some notes. The book of Ecclesiastes we've been studying fits today with people like you and me that rub shoulders with people in this world who are looking for purpose in life. Why am I here? What's it about? What's going on with the world around me? And how do I fit into that? And I want to set a little bit of the bigger picture of the book of Ecclesiastes for us into the broader range of the whole of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, what God's been about from the very beginning. And the entire message of the Bible starts with God making all things and calling into existence every creature that's there, and at the pinnacle, creating man in his own image. And when he created God, man in his image, he said something very interesting. He declared that it was not good for man to be alone. Now, God went about solving that problem on one level by having Eve be made out of the rib of Adam, and the two became, or the one became two people. But it's not just in marriage that God solved the problem that it's not good for man to be alone. You see, as image bearers of the triune God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had eternal communion with one another. There was relationship and community amongst the Godhead before humankind ever came. And one of the marks of displaying the image of God and man is that we would, to, we would live in communion with one another. We're social beings. So life at its best, we are living it together. Well, enter in the problem of man's fall into sin and Adam and Eve deciding to rebel against God and, and break His command. And when that happens, there's been relationship problems ever since, right? Adam and Eve blaming one another for the problems that they got themselves into. We see Cain, when asked about Abel, dodging his responsibility for his brother and asking, am I my brother's keeper? More relationship problems happen, and community becomes uh, perverted and changed at the Tower of Babel, where they got together not for good purposes, but to overthrow God and His authority over them. So God had to cause division and a, and a changing of their languages so they couldn't gather together for the wrong reasons. Community has always been God's intention for human flourishing, and it's wrecked by the fall. And that's the theme I think we see. It's a common theme throughout Scripture, but it's a common theme that we see here in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, mankind is divided, and isolated individuals living on their own, there's problems. We are called to be constantly pursuing community, and I say constantly pursuing it because it doesn't come naturally. The natural drift is for us to be separate and apart, to do it on our own. But we see gospel promises throughout the Scriptures that would undo this fall in this breakdown of community. Do you remember when, Adam, when God approached Abraham and said, I will be your God and you will be my people? 
To Moses, he said, I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. We see that into the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, we are members one of another. And later he says that we're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are created to be connected. The fall divides us, but Christ in His work of redemption, in making peace with the Father for us, also allows us to be at peace with with one another. With that backdrop of the history of God's redemption, let's look particularly at Ecclesiastes 4 and see how it describes best for us that we are better together. Follow along as I read Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 16. This is God's inspired, authoritative, and holy word. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not been born and has not seen evil deeds that are, not, that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all the toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and he eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all of his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For they fall, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. And again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we approach Your Word and as we see how You have designed us to function in community with one another, and as we see and hear from the the preacher in Ecclesiastes, the many problems and difficulties that arise from trying to go it on our own, I pray that we would learn. Uh, Lord, that we would go beyond a a theoretical understanding of the value of community, the dangers of isolation, but that we would practically and tangibly 
work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's you who works in us both to will and to do for your good pleasure. Lord, uh, encourage us by your indwelling spirit with the unity that we have in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that your word would be sweet to us and encourage us and challenge us along the way here. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see uh, from his typical under-the-sun perspective that we've been seeing throughout Ecclesiastes, the preacher misses out on the over-the-sun perspective that gives the right context, the right lens for understanding what he sees. What he's seeing is truthful. What he sees is reality. But it's not the whole picture because it just deals with uh, maybe just the temporal and not the eternal, maybe just the human level and not the divine perspective. So in his typical under-the-sun perspective, he shows tragedy, the tragedy of being alone and all the trouble and sorrow that comes from it. He describes the emptiness of human pursuits and meaning outside of the way that God has designed us to flourish together. Just two particular verses. Verse 8, it says, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother. The sorrow for that man. And then in verse 10, woe to him who is alone when he falls and he has no one to lift him up. Loneliness and isolation, seclusion, separation are here in Ecclesiastes 4 on full display, but they're just as much a part of today's human experience and the dilemma that we face. Isn't it true that maybe it's part and parcel with our American history, our rugged individualism, I can do it on my own, personal rights, personal responsibilities have a tendency to draw us to I take care of me, not we take care of us. But that, as it may be, over the past decade, I think technology has tended to just escalate and to um, bring a, a more speed to this idea that we are more into ourselves and more alone than, than ever. We tend to isolate ourselves with our cell phones or our tablets or the internet or social media, and we, we don't engage in that human-to-human, face-to-face contact. It's a cheap substitute to have um, social interaction on an electronic media. There's good things about it, and I don't want to throw all of it away. There's a value to it, but if that's what we're looking for to build true community, it's going to be insufficient. And most recently, since 2020, the pandemic and this concept of social distancing has, mar- has isolated families, friends, neighbors, and coworkers. It's isolated people at Redeemer. Now, if you remember at first when we were told, let's keep six feet so that we can stop the spread of the virus, they came up with this word called social distancing that I don't think existed before. This is a new concept. And so when it first came out, I distinctly remember a Christian author saying, we can't use this term social distancing. We can call it physical distancing, keeping space, somehow just making sure that we're taking precautions, but if we call it social distancing, 
do you realize the effects that we're going to have? At a time where we need to be as close as ever and as tight a community as ever, we're going to be speaking about keeping our distance socially. I think that damage has been done. I think suffering has taken place. I think socially speaking, we've fallen prey to some of the isolation and separation. And the answer to this struggle that we have as a community, I think, is hinted here in Ecclesiastes 4. But how are we to struggle under the sun with this reality? Well, you know our mission statement at Redeemer is that we, Redeemer is a community of Christians who love to worship their God, study His Word, and proclaim His gospel to the world. The gospel is that we've been reconciled to God through Jesus and His sacrifice, and we can have peace now with one another, so we can be a community that loves to worship, that loves to study, and loves to proclaim the good news. So, together we worship and we are a community of Christians. Let's look now at the passage before us and see really how we are better together. We're better together when facing oppression. Verses one, and th- one through three is a very dark picture of oppression. Oppression, all that are done under the sun. And we see the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. Oppression when you are alone, can it get any worse? On the side of the oppressors, they have all the power, but there was none to comfort these oppressed people. The preacher says it's so bad that, boy, it would be better if they were already dead. No, even better yet, if they had never been born. This is so bad for anybody to go through oppression alone. Now, we see oppression today, and there's oppression in our world that I think we feel like we can have little power over. How do we tackle the big problems that face uh, so many people who are put down by those in power and are hurt and harmed? And yet, the reality is that God gives us hope when we face oppression to do it together. I was trying to think of what Jesus' response to the oppression around him was. When he walked this earth, he saw plenty of the misuse of power. He saw plenty of the ravages of sin on the world. He saw how sickness and death and demons infected the world that he walked in now. There are times where we read that Jesus sighed or he groaned in his spirit. I think that's totally appropriate for us to, to feel that just sense of, of pain when we witness oppression. But Jesus came so that in His first coming, He could witness and to a limited degree help to restore some of the oppression to what it ought to be in justice. But really in His first coming, His primary mission was the cross so that he could go to the place where the sorrow and the pain and the injustice of man would be poured out on him 
and the justice of God would be done so that we could be rescued from that oppression. And His second coming, when He comes in the fullness of His kingdom, that's when we're going to see the oppression that is earthly or in the new heavens and the new earth released from there and the relief from that oppression where He wipes away every tear, He cures all diseases, and He gives wholeness to the nations. That we long for. But what do we do now when we face oppression? I don't know. You may have your own personal experience of seeing people who have been oppressed and alone when they face that. I think the worst example I have personally seen as I look back was 30 years ago when I traveled with a team of uh, students from Moody Bible Institute to go to Uganda. We spent a month in Uganda ministering where a tyrant dictator like Idi Amin had ravaged the country of Uganda. I spoke with pastors who had been put in jail for preaching the gospel of Christ and knew of others who had died at that oppression and that persecution. But when we were leaving Uganda, we ended up going through Nairobi airport and outside of Nairobi, actually kind of in the midst of Nairobi, there is a giant uh, garbage dump called Dandora. And we spent a morning there where this 30-acre garbage dump is littered with garbage, but people are all through that garbage picking and pulling whatever they can to get by. And there are cartels that run the way in which the garbage gets dumped there in the first place because there's expensive government contracts for taking the garbage out of the neighboring communities and then putting it into a garbage dump where then the best of the garbage got picked over by those who had power. And those who don't have power have to pick the rest. And if they dare to go and take the good stuff, they're beaten and killed. Women, children, Children can't afford the school fees, so they have to go and pick through this garbage. Well, while we were there, we got to visit a little tiny school on the border of this trash heap and got to see a Christian woman who was teaching these children. She was part of a church that was just down the street, and she was teaching them and giving them some measure of hope, giving them some measure of an understanding that this is not all that there is, that Jesus came and suffered in the midst of the darkness here so that you can have life and life eternal. I know that to whatever extent that we can help others that we see in oppression, if it's not as big a problem as that, there's, there's plenty of other forms if we're brokenhearted as Jesus is for the lot of those that are oppressed, we can help as we're able. But the best thing that we have for them is the hope that this isn't all there is, that there's more, and that there is a one who has been victorious over even the grave, and that's Christ Jesus. And so, I think we can bring hope in the midst of that oppression if we come alongside and go. When they're left alone, there is no hope. We see this in the midst of work. Together in work, we're better. Verses 4 through 8 describe this, this going it solo approach. Verse 4, I saw that all the toil and skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor, 
this also is vanity and striving after the wind. So the preacher considers work, and when you go it alone, that lone worker looks at what other people have, and his motivation for working so hard is, I want what they got. Maybe I can get a piece of that. And so this rat race that gets um, engaged in is something that consumes, and, and it's a striving after the wind. You'll never actually get there. The fool then folds his hands and eats his own flesh. I think this is the pendulum swing to the other side. Oh, I see all these people working so hard. They're doing it all for the wrong reason, so I'm just going to have to sit back here and not do anything. Well, when the lazy person folds their hands, they have no food to eat, and they consume themselves. Verse 7 says, there's another problem. I saw vanity under the sun. One person who doesn't have any other, not a son or a brother, yet there's no end to all of his toils. His eyes are never satisfied. He's a workaholic. He's going and working harder and harder and harder, but because there's no community for him, there's no connection for him, it's all about getting more for himself. I'd like to say, well, yeah, that's the problem of those people, and that problem is out there, that I'm never so preoccupied with productivity and the task at hand that I would ever ignore the people that are around, but sadly, I think that's probably more my inclination, is that when there's a job to do, let's get down, let's work at it, let's focus on getting this done right, getting it done well, productivity, and then the people component, looking around for no other person that I'm doing this for, I just get consumed in the job. We ought to remember that there are people that we are serving, that we are connected to in the midst of work, and really the kind of the bringing back of that pendulum to uh, moderation is verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. When we live and work together, we see the blessing and the, the goodness of that moderation and that motivation being others. Verses 9 through 12 tell us about troubling times and how things are better for us when we're together in trouble. Verse 9 says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. The productivity of two people over one person is just easy to see. And it kind of has a, an efficiency and a multiplying effect of how productive we can have, we, we can be. But then here comes the trouble. Verse 10, if they fall, one will lift up the fellow. So there's an opportunity when we work together in our jobs and we face some trouble, then there's somebody has got our back and they can help us out in the midst of that trouble. Rescue one another. Look out for one another. And then in verse 11, again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? You know, if you're exposed to the uh, out of doors overnight and you're traveling from one city to another in this time, you need to do what you can to risk uh, to, to, to stay warm or you could die of exposure. And so traveling together and uh, keeping warm together, that's a benefit. That is helping one another. In verse 12, though, a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. 
You know, when the enemies come, when, when there's people that are going to take advantage of you, having somebody that is alongside with you is such a huge help. And then he goes on to say a three-fold cord is not quickly broken. You've heard this probably preached in wedding sermons. And in some weddings, I think I've seen a, a cord where those three different strands are then kind of braided together within the marriage ceremony. The one strand representing the husband and the other strand representing the wife and then the middle strand representing God and then the braiding that goes. I do know how to braid. I had three girls, so it's like this, 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 okay? That imagery, I think, while it's poetic and pretty beautiful for a marriage ceremony, doesn't, I think, exactly reflect what's going on here. God isn't mentioned as being a part of this. I think on its surface level, what we're seeing in verses 9 to 12 is two are better than one. If two lie together, if two are there, they will withstand. How great it is to have two. Now, what if you had three? Wouldn't that be even better? The community can expand between just you and your best friend. It can expand to, to even more. So, when you know there's trouble, what are you going to do? Grab somebody to help you out. And if you're anticipating that someone else you know and care for is about to meet some trouble, go alongside with them. Help them out. Be available to them. Call them up and say, hey, if you need any help, I'm, I'm here for you. If you need anything, I'll be right there. You know, I think the times that I have gone it alone when trouble hit haven't worked out nearly as well as the times when I've grabbed somebody to come along and help out. If you remember Brian Huff, our uh, illustrious uh, youth director back in the day, I think it was within just a few weeks of him first being here, I got a call from a desperate uh, church member who said, I'm going to take my life. And I grabbed Brian and said, hey, jump in my truck. We got to go somewhere. Why? What's going on? I'll tell you on the way. And we drove and we went. I wasn't going to go alone. This is, this is a dangerous situation. This is a difficult situation. I'm going to need, we arrive, you know, here, take this, put it up on the top of the refrigerator. Don't let her have it. Let's talk. Let's work. And so going together is much better. I remember calling Scott Creasy and Tony and saying, I know it's late, but can we meet up? There's somebody that's missing and we got to go find them. And we made our way behind some buildings in the dark of night to try and find a guy that had wandered away. I remember getting a phone call and seeing Janie look at me after the phone call, and as soon as I hung up, I said, they lost the baby. We got to go. Going together and being together in the midst of trouble makes you way more effective, helps you if things go bad and you need somebody to get your back, and it just is a testimony to the fact that God's designed us as a, as a community to work together to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Verses 13 to 16 kind of wrap it up with the area of leadership and that we're better together in leadership, not going on our own. Verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. 
He's going to do it on his own. He's the smartest, most experienced person and leader, so I don't need anybody else's advice. Here's a leadership point for us. I don't think we should ever outgrow the need for hearing from others and getting the advice of others. It goes on to say that, uh, for he went from the prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor, I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with the youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people, all of whom he led, but this is the outcome. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Popularity is fleeting. Your time of influence and leadership and direction is going to come to an end, and people won't even remember you. I think that's a good thing for most of us, so that we would be humbled and know our roots, know our beginnings. When we're humble, we get the advice of others. We want others around us. But we don't depend on others for us to be fulfilled and to lead. Life is meant to be done together, and we are better in every circumstance when we do live together. The oppression that we face, we need one another to overcome. The loneliness, the isolation, the seclusion that, the, that we separate and in fa- in, in face in this life, that is life under the sun. And it's marked by oppression, but we are better when we're together in oppression. Jesus intends that we should live life together. We're better together when we are in work with one another. We're better together in the midst of trouble. And we're better together in leadership And in fact, as we see what Jesus' purpose is for us, Ecclesiastes is about finding our purpose. Well, Jesus gives us the answer to that purpose. And when Jesus gives us a purpose in the greatest prayer that he ever prayed in John chapter 17, now Pastor Tony last Sunday night walked us through a lot of prayers in the Bible and he made a strong case for why he believed that John 17 is the best prayer ever prayed in the history of mankind, bar none. Lots of prayers in the whole Bible. That's the best, he said. Now, I tried to bring in something because nobody was talking. I said, what about in Revelation? There's an awesome prayer at the, the, the elders and the four living creatures and there's a scene that is amazing. He says, yeah, but this is the best one. I'm going to give it to him because what Jesus prayed for is you and for me. And this is what he prayed before he goes to the cross, before he does the work that he was sent to do. He prayed, I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one that they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you and they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus prayed this for you and for me. Jesus went to the cross so that he could ransom and redeem us, to save us to be a part of his body, that he connects and unites us together under his headship. And we, 
as connected Christians are sons and daughters of the same God, brothers and sisters in Christ, life will be better when we do it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your divine plan, the way that you created us in your image to have community with one another. It's so easy for us to fall prey to going it on our own. It's so easy for us to give in to the temptations of isolation, just head down in our phones and not interacting with one another and caring for each other as you've called us to do. Uh, Lord, we like to get down on our teenagers for this, but we're just as guilty as adults. Lord, give us a mind that would seek to be together and focused on one another rather than just ourselves. And Lord, we'll seek to give you glory in that, that we would demonstrate the unity that you have in the Godhead and the unity that you have intended for the church by living life together. Help us in this in very practical ways to seek out relationships to bring glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our hymn of response is hymn 565. We're going to stand and sing verses 1 through 3 of All for Jesus as the elders prepare the table for communion. <laughs> 